you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. What up, what up? This is your boy Rob Clark welcoming you to the 22 November Network. Get ready for another exciting edition of the Lone Gunman Podcast featuring me. That's right, your boy Rob Clark coming at you. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody? This is your boy Rob Clark. This is episode number 49 of the Lone Gummit Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. David Josephs joins me. But before we get to Mr. Josephs, I want to encourage everyone to please, if you are planning on attending a JFK conference this year and you want it to be a good conference, stock full of good speakers and good researchers. Head over to reopenkennedycase.org. I'll put the links up on the website. Speaking of websites, I have a new one. It's just tlgpodcast.com. Real simple. I already changed all the buttons on the Spreaker page. Um, If you're my friend on social media, you know about this already. Uh, But please check it out. where it's going to be housing all future episodes. It's going to make it real easy to listen. Uh, So please, please, please do check that out. And now, without further ado, I bring to you Mr. David Josephs. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show, everybody. This week, I have JFK researcher David Josephs on the line with me. We're going to be getting into a little bit about the bus ride, the cab ride, and uh, uh, basically some Oswald sightings, the, uh, some timing of things, and uh, the genesis of this idea is from a listener, and I think it was Johnny Case, my buddy Eddie, 
and I can't I couldn't find the email when I went back but it, it was requested that we kind of get into this and, and kind of clear the air a little bit and uh, see if we can figure some things out here about this cab ride bus ride uh, some of the timing some of the sightings so that's what we're going to be doing here today and uh, for those of you who don't know my guest David Josephs uh, head over to ctka.net sica.net he has a, a very very uh, intensely researched article about Oswald in Mexico was he there or was he not and the man behind the theory of the evidence is the conspiracy <laughs> welcome everyone much. mr. David Joseph to the show how you doing buddy Awesome. Me too, because there's nothing more I like talking about, and especially some of the events going around in Dealey Plaza that day. And I guess we can start at the beginning. Um, we have Oswald at the Texas School Book Depository. Okay, shots are fired at, J at JFK at 12.31 p.m. Okay, now let's be generous and give Oswald five minutes say to get out of the building okay because we have to account for whether it did happen or not um i guess the uh the baker encounter the marion baker encounter yeah, on the second floor isn't it? yeah and uh but yeah being generous are we, are we going to talk about the affidavit baker encounter or are we going to talk his testimony yeah exactly exactly um I, i'm one for First day testimony, first day affidavits, the very first thing before, you know, they got changed. Yeah, um, I agree 100%. The first thing that they said. Exactly. And and what Baker said at first, there was no lunchroom encounter that he ran into, what was it, what was it somebody on the third or fourth floor? Indeed, with truly running ahead of him uh, by the time Baker catches up. He said third or fourth floor landing that and was, somebody was walking away from the stairs. Yeah. Classic five foot, was it five foot ten, 165 pounds? Yeah. Almost 30. Brown jacket. Brown jacket. Yep. And, and what, what surprises me mostly about that is not only do they ignore the affidavit, but in his questioning, they, it's as if it never happens truly is never asked I mean the entire encounter disappears even though they mention his affidavit in his testimony right yeah and he, even though I think it was um, Oswald was in the station when Marion Baker came to initially give his testimony wasn't he yes that's my understanding it was real real quick later that afternoon yeah and he didn't even acknowledge Oswald being there or say hey that's the guy I saw you know is someone wandering through the Texas School Book Depository second floor there, uh, walking past Mrs. Reed, right? Right. White t-shirt. And uh, this person doesn't have a, a, a brown jacket or brown shirt on. It's, he's just got a t-shirt. Right. I remember. And now this is the big problem I had with all those Oswald in the doorway people. And oh, no. Now we're back to the doorway. <laughs> yes. Well, just, just to illustrate the fact that 
because a lot was made of the shirt that he was supposed to be wearing that day. And I believe you were telling me that in all accounts, Oswald always stated that he went home after work and changed his clothes, right? Well, the appendix. So you can actually go and see for yourself, or any of your listeners, obviously, the, the, war, the Warren Report. The Appendix 11 has the interrogation reports. And you have Hosty is there, Bookout is there, Fritz is there, and Kelly is there. And in every single case, they jot down and mention in their reports, in their notes, that Oswald gets home, changes his gray slacks and his briar loom they don't say briar loom but they do say his shirt uh throws that stuff into the drawer and heads heads on out right so that's what that's what i was always saying you know they can't even prove that he had that ugly ass burnt orange brown shirt on while he was at work not one single witness has oswald in that shirt at work that day even, even if he was, let's suppose for a second that he, he did, and or a very similar shirt. Um, what, what we do know is that, or we have to at least agree, that he changed it. So when, he, when the story about the bus comes around and Miss Bledsoe is used to tell us what he was wearing and connect Oswald to this bus ride... Um, Bledsoe describes the shirt he was arrested in. Right. Already With the torn. Hole on the elbow and yeah. Torn buttons, most likely from the scrape and scruffle that they had in the theater, right? Exactly, and that's that's another thing I was pointing out to those Oswald in the doorway guys that said, "Oh, he had a V-neck T-shirt on." Well, no, it's not a V-neck. It's been it's been tugged all to hell because, you know, they were wrestling with him and they probably, you know, you grab a prisoner by his shirt and tug him around, lead him around a little bit, you know, roughing him up. Because it looked like quite a scuffle coming out of the Texas theater there and getting him in that car. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. I, I, I do want to touch base real quick on that Oswald in the doorway thing because I, I did address that a while back. Um, the, the cornerstone of that argument is that mathematically the odds – uh, would be so ridiculously high with so many matches that they offer between the image that they see and what Oswald was wearing or is wearing or could have been wearing. Um, mathematically, so, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way. You can't look at a picture and say these things match and therefore the odds of them being the same are X. Right. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even know how they see a buttonhole from that far away in a blurry background of a photo. But Exactly. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, I, I made the point. I mean, you could have 10,000 things about a shirt matching, but if they're the different color, it doesn't matter what the probability is. It, they're not the same shirt. Right. And to me, I can see a distinct pattern in that shirt, like, you know, like that plaid shirt Billy Lovelady was wearing that day. I think it's reaching for something that didn't need to be reached. And then there, we also know that there's that prayer man back there that seems to have disappeared from the records. So in, in terms of him moving away from the, you know, escaping per se, I, I think we have a couple of different people escaping from the, 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 
depository building after the uh, after the shots. Right. I think we have, you know, someone getting into that car, into the Rambler. That Craig saw. Which Craig saw, which I think you and I possibly we've talked. You know, we if that was our Oswald, that's kind of strange. <laughs> yeah, and and just to clear things up for the listeners, we are probably sure. going to be talking a little bit about Harvey and Lee today because that, that's another one of your areas especially you know taking all John Armstrong's work and going further with it like he asked us to and so when you hear us speak of Harvey we're going to be referring to the person arrested for the crime and Lee being the real Lee Oswald and either getting away or you know we don't know what happened so just just to clear things up that's how we'll be referring to them you know from here on out one of the one of the hardest things to overcome in the Harvey and Lee uh, evidence and, and discussion is the existence of Harvey the summer of 63 all in law in New Orleans working for Bannister and doing all the things he did down there while simultaneously all summer long Ruby and the Lee Oswald, born in New Orleans, um, are in Dallas. Uh, it's it's really not hard to find evidence of this, and and it's it's kind of plain, plain on the nose, it's the nose on your face. So when we talk again about Lee possibly working with Ruby to set this Harvey Oswald character up for the for the crime, uh, that's that's who we're talking about. Right. Okay. So now. So. We got the question becomes: Does <laughs> um, Harvey did mention something about the Rambler though, and got very upset? He did. He said, uh, "That's Mrs. Payne's car. You leave her out of this." So, and I think we both agree that the person who got into the car was more than likely not Harvey. Right. Uh, but for him to have said that and to have been recorded as saying that, uh, and that, that brings up another point, very difficult to know what he did or didn't say, um, given given the lack of, uh, of, of real quality notes to not refer or tape. Right, and he might have not even known the circumstances of which they were referring to actually seeing that station wagon. You know what I'm saying? Indeed, indeed. So let's get to Harvey for a second, okay? Now, I don't buy, I don't buy a lot of what Buell Frazier says. I think he's lying about the events that happened that morning. And, but, okay, we have Frazier, who, in his oral history for the Sixth Floor Museum, mm-hmm. states that he he stands in that doorway, okay, and he sees Harvey leave the leave the depository cross Houston and disappear around the corner to Maine. To Maine. Okay, Houston over to Maine is over there. Oh, all right. Well, that's different. All right. Didn't realize that. I didn't, I'd have to look at that, but all right, that sounds he, good. He, he got on the bus at, on Main think, Street, right? Uh, well, that's what they're saying. Right. I don't think, Slee, I, you know, I happen to think, well, let's. let's well, that's the first time, that, that's the first time Frazier had ever said that. He'd never said that before. So who knows? Yeah, I, I, I think Fraser was given a story. Yeah. To tell, 
And, you know, as much as he he couldn't get lying too much, I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it, it's very hard to understand why he would make up a story and then say the bag was so small. Well, I've got an idea about that, but... Um, okay. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I've got, looking through HSCA testimony of... Mm-hmm. Of uh, a guy named Eddie Shields, mm-hmm. who worked at the other yeah. Texas School Book Depository building. Right. Uh, uh, Junior Jarman's testimony, and I think Harold Norman's testimony. They all said that Frazier gave Oswald a ride to work every morning, not just on the way back from Irving. I'm talking every morning, David. And. That morning, yeah, specifically, think, he yeah. he was. They asked him where his rider was, and he they they both said that Fraser said that he dropped him off at the building. Yeah, um, it's it's it's. I, I actually went. You got to talk to Jim DiGiunio about this a little one too. Um, Shields is not overly reliable in terms of. I, I went through and read his testimony and did all that stuff. Um, Shields is friends. He basically is telling a secondhand story. And right. saying that his friends, Jarman, Norman, and uh, uh, Williams possibly, told him that that morning they um, let, what's his face, Frazier let Oswald off near the book depository there on the corner right. and, and then left. Right. Um, and then went to park. But if you look at, I, I didn't find any corroboration for what Shields had to say. See, I did. In, in, in Harold and Jarman's testimony, they both say the same thing. Yeah. All right. Love, love to see that. Love to see an article like that. That sounds really well, cool. Yeah. Well, I wrote, I wrote it up. I'll, I'll send you a link later. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to see it because I, I included that's screen- been always a very strange thing to do with shields. <clears throat> yeah. I included screenshots of, of, of all that stuff in there. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll send that to you later. Um, okay. So there's also the whole thing finding Frazier afterward. I mean, with his. His father, I don't know if you've ever read into Bill Randall, the father, and yeah. there's all kinds of strange things going on with those people. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't know enough about it to talk, you know, completely intelligently about it. Yeah, but like I said, all right, so let's get to the, uh, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, the cab ride. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, but I, I, you know, if you want to, I mean, we can go back to uh, one of these reports that I'm looking at, Kelly. Yeah. wrote a report that stated that he transferred to other buses to get to his destination. Oh, really? I mean, you, you can't believe, yeah. You, the, the recaps of the interrogations, one person says he took a bus to the theater where he was arrested. Another one said he took the bus home, then took a transfer, got, uh, uh, and then they said, oh, and then when Fritz said, by the way, he had a taxi. Fritz asked him if he had ridden a taxi, and then Oswald changed his story. Yeah, yeah because that's uh, he had a transfer in his pocket for for Marcellus, uh, yeah. right? Not so much. No. No, in my yeah, I'm thinking that the transfer was was Planet. provided like the shells well yeah. after the fact. Yeah, because they didn't even find that stuff until hours after he'd been in custody. John Armstrong, and he, should, he he mentioned and talked to the National Archivist, and the bus transfer that he that the guy that was actually was all crumpled up, 
I mean, it was folded up and it had creases all over it. And if you look at the ones that they, you know, the pictures that they show you of it, it's right. just not the same thing. So huh. I'm not a real big believer of that whole bus ride <clears throat> situation. Yeah, I'm not either. But whatever you want to go, let's let's start. You go, you know, intro me into something and we'll just rock and <clears> roll with it. All right. Well, the, the first problem I have with the cab ride is the timing of it. Now, Wally in his... I guess his little timesheet that he keeps for each of his uh, each of his fares. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has a timestamp on there that it, from the Greyhound station to the 500 block of North Beckley occurred at 12:30 to 12:45. Okay, mm-hmm. and that it took well th- basically three miles, I guess, but. If if he picked up a fare at the Greyhound station at 12:30, JFK was still alive, Oswald was still at work, and that that whole time scenario just doesn't work. Now he tried to explain he tried to explain it away, saying, "Oh, he just you know rounded it and averaged it to 15 minute intervals or what have you." But there's other things on here that aren't. That, you know, they're more precise than, than, than what he's given us here. Well, lead, lead people to Commission Exhibit 382, which is the, the log sheet for Whaley for right. that day. And, you know, it, it does have an awful whole, awful lot of 15-minute increment shots there through there. And, and as you said, it also has some a little bit more exacting times. Uh, it also, you know, you, know you, you don't know, okay? I, I have to agree with you, you don't know. Um, and f- the whole thing with Whaley, though, was that he, he initially tells us that he is a long-time cab driver, knows every corner and everything on every corner in Dallas, and yet five or six times in his testimony tells us that he drops Oswald off at Nietzsche's, N-E-C-H-E-S, and Beckley, which don't intersect. No. No. So he does this over and over and over again. Now it is close. It is close to Beckley though. It's kind of behind Beckley, maybe a block or so. Nietzsche's. The Nietzsche's is is actually it's way up and over to be honest with is you. It? It's it's yeah it's it's really not very close at all. And it takes them calling him back and reminding him. I mean they even point to it and reiterate it on the map a number of times. It's it's. It's kind of strange is what it is. I, I've, I've gone through, actually went to the maps, pulled it up, tried to do a comparison and see what was going on. And until he, they correct him, until the lawyers correct him, and, he, and, he, and it goes back to Beckley and Neely, um, it's kind of strange. Well, they seem to do a lot of that and, with, and with, with, with Whaley's drives, testimony. He's supposed to drive past, right? He's supposed to, he's supposed to drive past. Uh, the rooming house by four or five, maybe six blocks. Yeah, if he's in the 500 block, Oswald lived in the 1200 block, so that's at least and seven the blocks. The 500 block is, is almost even south of the uh, of, of where those main arteries are. It's actually closer to 10th and Patton and yeah. Ruby than it is to his own room. Right. So if there was someone in the cab which, and I, we talked a little bit about this before, Whaley really doesn't have 
a good grasp on what he was wearing and what he was doing. It seems like he was provided with details like the silver threads in the shirt and the bracelet on the wrist. I mean, yeah, he, he and he also makes an, another mistake when he says that Oswald had on two jackets, one a navy blue jacket over top of a gray jacket. But the blue jacket was found in the, in the school book depository after that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Correct. And, and we don't yeah, even know no. if Oswald had a gray jacket, period. It definitely not the one that was found in the parking lot. That's, that's for sure. Wrong size, wrong everything, never really connected to Oswald. And that's why we kind of say the evidence is the conspiracy, because as you pile on and look into just about any, any, direction in this assassination and the cover-up and the conspiracy, the evidence doesn't tell you what happened. <laughs> right. The evidence only tells you how they covered up what happened and how they misdirected what happened. Yeah. Because, yeah, for, yeah I mean, if we already show that, Oz, that Bledsoe is describing a shirt that she couldn't have known about until after the fact, then he really wasn't on the bus. And right. there's some really great threads at, at uh, a couple of good forms out there that'll, that show and prove that he, he just wasn't on that bus, and in turn, he probably wasn't in that cab either. Probably not, no. So, you know, yet at the same time, we have Roberts seeing an Oswald, the Oswald, some Oswald come into her home wearing just a t-shirt. Right. And running, was running back to the room some scuffling, some changing, some things, and then him leaving with a jacket on. Right, and we do have a kind of a time frame for that, being right around uh -huh. 1 o'clock, right? Time with her, with exactly, her soap right operas. No, please, go ahead. <clears throat> oh, I was just saying this because she knew about what time it was, because it was, it was right when her soap opera was coming on at 1 o'clock. Exactly. It's kind of the same thing when we get down to the to the tippet. If, if he's leaving right around one and Markham needs to get to work. I mean, I went through this as well with a variety of people uh, online. Markham needs to get to work. She knows when the bus is. She's walking down to the 115, 118 bus or so to be there a little ahead of time. This all occurs a little after one o'clock and... Oswald is said to have come in from the west. I'm sorry, not the west. A uh, walking west from the east. Right. And when and having passed a shop and a variety, and, and isn't isn't to the east is also where Ruby's was. Exactly. That that's and it was off the beaten path. If he was headed to the theater, it was he was taking the the scenic route basically, because he could have gone well, a much shorter way. And that's kind of why I'm thinking he might have gone directly to the theater. Very, very possible he did, and that the people who are the, the, the police car that honks outside of Roberts a little after 1 o'clock right. while Oswald is there. Yeah, car 107. If this, <laughs> is, if this is actually Lee, if this is someone else playing the Oswald part, Again, it can't be. He's got to change his clothes. So, and because we did find his changed clothes in his room. Right. There's inventory sheets about it. And pictures. And exactly. So, 
we almost have to conclude that it was indeed Harvey going in and out of his room. Um, is it possible that the honk honk of this little car was what he ran around the corner and got into, and that's how he got to the theater so fast? It's possible, and also... Earlene Roberts stated that when she last saw him, he was standing there at the corner of Zhang's, just kind of waiting, maybe for a bu- mm-hmm. another bus or a ride, whatever, however you want to look at it. And then she looked back out Either and he was way, gone. Either he, way, I think we agree that, that, that Harvey himself, this Oswald, got to the theater well before even Tippett was killed. Oh, most definitely. And I'll tell you okay. an interesting nugget that I didn't know um, until recently about Car 107. Car, there was no car 107 in the Dallas Police Department, but there was the year before, and it was a it was a 1962 Ford sedan, and it had been decommissioned and sent somewhere else in Texas, I think to Mineral Springs to an auto recycler or reseller or something like that, and Dusty's done a lot of work on this, but he found where Jack Ruby had made a call to this Mineral Springs place yeah. and possibly could have procured that car. I mean, how hard would it be, you know, to, to sticker it back up or even if they took the stickers off or the paint off, you know, to make it look sure. like a police car again, you know? 100%. I agree with you uh, 100%. I mean, there's, there's really nothing beyond the pale anymore. It's... it's it's a plan if it makes sense and can be done and would help the situation it's it's very possible it was done yeah and we have yeah we have that we have that sighting of it and then Uh we also have another sighting at the tippet murder of another police car in the alley in the alleyway right yeah and then it's and then you know it's gone never spoke of again it just seemed that was just an interesting nugget to me to find that out about Car 107, oh. you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember reading that a little while back and, and thinking, you know, how everything kind of works and pulls together, how um, the the CAA would sub out the jobs and uh, for creating of uniforms and badges and stamps and pins. Uh, it, it was very interesting that at the time the CAA was great at all these things. Right. And yet, it would appear people think that they just decided to take the summer and that, that few months off and not do any of these things. It seems kind of strange to me since that was their business. So, yeah. Um, and we know Jack Ruby had a lot of, of contacts in the police department where he could find out, you know, he would say, hey, I need to get my hands on an old police car. You know, what, what you know, point me in the right direction. And that had been really reading, e- easy to do. Sure. No, our, our John Armstrong did some great work with uh, Ruby and his history over at LeeandHarvey.net that people should also check out. Because uh, Ruby was, uh, there's been back and forth talk about his job as an informant and his being on the inside. And and uh, John makes a very strong case for as many times as Ruby has been involved in gun running and drug running and, and criminal activity, how little time he has spent in court, in jail, or being prosecuted for any of this stuff over the years. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting new angle to really take on it, to understand that FBI, CIA, and even military intelligence had people just about everywhere. 
Yes, they did. From the mid, yeah, mid fifties to the late seventies. Um, you know, whether it's happening like that now is a little hard to know one way or the other. But it is, you know, back then it was, it was just rampant. Everything yeah. you never, nothing really seemed to be what it was. Yeah, and I think a lot of those guys, you know, coming back from the the war, you know, be it mm-hmm. Korea or what, what have you, at that time period, you know, a lot of these guys coming back from their en- enlistment, you know, they would come back and join join the police force, you know, local or otherwise. Yes. And, and I'm I'm sure it's not you know above the pale for them to say, hey, you guys, you know, I know when you're out there in the real world, if you if you see or hear anything that would be of interest to us. We'll make it worth your while, you know, to to let us know. And I'm sure a lot of them yeah. did, you know. Especially a guy named Clay Shaw. Yeah, yeah. You know, or 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 I'm specifically referring to, you know, maybe you know, assets in the Dallas Police Department itself. Oh God, yeah, string Phillip. Yeah, there was quite a few, quite a few in every aspect. Agree, ag- agree completely. The the. It was, it's just chock full. Now, maybe it's because we're analyzing and look closely at these specific areas, but it does seem like in every spot that Oswald services, he's surrounded. Yeah. And surrounded by lots of lots of friendlies and unfriendlies. Yeah, even in, even in New Orleans. So the uh, idea of them planting a gun on Harvey in the theater. Right. Is that... Uh, I know Dusty's also talked a little bit about that. I've talked to others about that. Um, they're not really sure. Well, the evidence linking him to the to the Carcano and the handgun are is it's real oh, thin, it's you know. Very very thin, and what we understand, I guess, you know, your listeners should know that this gun that they took from Oswald was basically standard issue police. 38 special. special. Yeah. You know, um, shocker, he would end up with, you know, extra shells in his pocket after he's arrested, oh you know. And the shells themselves look like they've been sitting in a gun belt for God knows how long. <laughs> the chains and stuff on the, on the outside casings. It's, again, it's, it's, the evidence is worthless for proving Oswald's guilt in anything, really. It's, it just helps illuminate what, what went wrong, so... Yeah, and Dusty had a close-up of the firing pin of that mm-hmm. revolver, and it mm-hmm. wasn't bent. So mm-hmm. whatever happened in that theater, I mean, if he wanted to use it, he definitely could have used it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If he felt that he was being surrounded and, and that was the last, time to make a last stand, you know, I mean, he could have done that if he chose to, if he even had the gun to begin with. But didn't they find the holster for it back at Beckley? A holster, I, I couldn't say one way or the other. What I do know is that there were witnesses who saw Ruby handing Oswald a pistol after the assassination before he left. Uh, that's another discussion that, that right. John was able to, to find and, and expand on. So there's all kinds of things running rampant on, on this. Um, <sighs> well, in, interesting to me too, David, if... There's there's sightings of Ruby everywhere that day. I mean, you've got him at Parkland, you've got him outside the school book depository, you got him on the grassy knoll, you got him around the theater. Um, 
I've even seen pictures. Now, if you look at some of the pictures of the reporters that were, at, you know, people said that it was, it was Ruby, you know, in the jail, you know, posing as yeah. a reporter. But well, he corrected, right? Did he correct yeah. um, Alexander or someone about the fair play for Cuba Committee? Yeah, yeah. But I, the problem I'm having is I don't think that was Jack Ruby. Because if you if you look at um, it, I'm sure you've seen it, but the the Gail and Bill Newman film, where they where they grabbed him right, you know, like five minutes after the assassination and put him in the TV studio, right? And uh, I forget the guy's name, but I think it's WFAA. They had him on there, but they they sat there and talked to Bill and Gail Newman for like ten minutes, and then and then they went back into the newsroom, okay, and, and where they have you know people at desks, you know, sitting behind them. And, and this and that, and there's a guy that looks like Jack Ruby at a desk back there. Oh yeah, he, yeah. Quite a lot of people obviously look. Yeah, they do. A lot of them look like Ruby with the hat and and the kind of husky, and even his brother looked a lot like him from what I remember too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was this guy was a little more balding, is what it mm-hmm. appeared to me, but he did have pretty almost the same features. As far as his profile, you know, and and everything like that. I mean, who knows? But I, I know John Armstrong, were, you know, was focusing on uh, another Jacob Rubenstein who was infiltrating. Uh, what was it? Some some was it somewhere yeah. in Illinois or Indiana? Yeah, no, I, I remember what you're talking about. It was a different different military guy. Um, yeah, diff- different Jack Ruben. Mostly the same age, same everything. Yeah, it, it's. I hadn't really gotten too much into the 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 Ruby and where he was, and all I know is that um, they downplayed so um, immensely his roles and responsibilities in Dallas that, like the Paines and Demorichald and others, they they just don't delve deeply enough for people to get a firm understanding of what these people were doing at the time. And I think that hurts us the most in our uh, uh, inability to get this information across is the context and mindset of the of 1963 versus today, 50 years later. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's very hard to imagine these things. Yeah, it's people were very more 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 politically savvy back then than than they are now. I mean, nowadays the average person could care less about who's who's running for Senate or governor or whatever, you know what I'm saying? A representative. But back then, you know, they didn't have as many distractions as we have now. And, and, you know, this, this stuff with the communists, you know, they were propagandized with back then people really, really bought into it back then. That's why you had these groups, you know, like the Minutemen and the John Birch society had so much power back then. Uh, you know, because people were interested in what was going on with their government back then. But nowadays, it's, like I said, it's who cares, you know, I mean. And, and um, although with, with, today's who's, with today's who cares, at least you can do and search and find out the information. Back, back then, yes, they cared. They had passionate opinions. But all these opinions were based on the information that they were fed. Right. That's why a lot of them actually went out to the rallies and the meetings and, you know, yeah. got involved. Exactly. And, and that's why between the plans 
to write articles and continue in a mass communication that tells a certain story. And then when you go to these liberal groups, uh, years later you come to find out that more than half of the membership and those who ran these liberal groups were actually the FBI themselves trying to find who these people were. Yep, COINTEL so, PRO at its finest. Everything was an illusion, it seemed. Everything during the 60s seemed to never be what exactly it was, which why, which makes this whole JFK and the experience and all the evidence, I think, retain its interest after all these years. Yeah, I mean, even when you look at what Bannister was doing in New Orleans with when he was, um, you know, keeping his list and tracking the Reds, you know, and, and trying to basically, uh, I would call it kind of underhandedly out- uh, you know these co- supposed communists, a bit, you know, by baiting them with these um, flyers and and going around to the colleges and and keeping track of who was who sh- who was showing up at meetings and speeches, and it was a real it was a real business back then. Well, I think people forget how easy it was for communism to infiltrate the United States versus the opposite. We were not very good through the 50s and 60s with getting information out of Russia. We had no real good spy um, networks there at all. Whereas in the United States, it seemed to me that we were spending so much time trying to find the infiltration, trying to deal with the fact that our society was so open that defectors, double agents, you know, the, the as you read more of Bill Simpich's stuff about Mexico and the number of highly placed double agents from Castro oh, yeah. who existed and worked in our government and knew everything that was going on. It, it's it's hard, hard to imagine that anything positive could have happened. It just seems to me that no matter what, there were assets in place to sabotage. Yeah, I mean, no they... hard, his stuff going on down there causing sabotage. Dulles and that stuff with the U2 causing those problems. I mean, it's just nonstop. And, and we were losing. We were getting our butt kicked when it came to fighting communism in the late 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. We were scared, scared to death of it. And that's what I think one of them, either Harvey or Lee, whichever one that they sent over there, was part of the false defector program to get people into Russia, get them behind that Iron Curtain, and get them to stay as long as they possibly could and and figure out as much stuff as they possibly could without, you know, drawing too much interest, but, and then get the hell out, which is what I think, you know, Oswald was a part of back then, you know, doing that Operation Redskin type thing where, you know, but, and since I have you on, on the line here, <clears throat> we can get into a little bit about this, but it always struck me as odd how someone with such a poor education supposedly yeah could master the russian language as supposedly as good as he did to fool you know marina and well and all to be that honest, to be honest with you Rob, most most of the people who experienced harvey and his writing and his speaking were under the impression that english was a second language right that he was and spoke Russian, that Marina even believed he had an accent from a specific region, um, that there's a lot more going on with Harvey 
and who he may or may have not been and working for. And the same thing with Marina. I mean, there was a whole investigation into the, the, the wives coming out of Russia and coming to the United States, divorcing their, their, their American husbands and remaining assets to the, yep. to, to the you know, KGB and intelligence. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't see how Harvey, or rather R. Lee, learned any of this stuff. Um, but let's remember, if it was Harvey, and Harvey did come out of Eastern Europe, right? Uh, then was he an asset designed to infiltrate our situation? I mean, think about it that way. Could you imagine if knowing that we're going to have immigration and we have all these kids and all these people coming to America after World War II, is it that we use this asset or were we being used and had a sleeper in the name of Harvey that was used in a different way? Again, it, it, it gets very, very complicated because we don't live in, the, in that world. We don't understand those layers of onion that need to be created to keep crying eyes out. Exactly. I think, I think the Harvey Lee, I agree with, with John with that, Harvey and Lee was one of the most important secrets to keep in this assassination. Right, and I totally agree with you about Marina because, I mean, what, what are the sheer chances of one teenage girl yeah. in Russia meeting three U.S. defectors, having relations with two of them, and marrying uh -huh. one of them? I mean, the yeah. odds of that are astronomical. Completely. That and the whole white Russian community in Dallas and how that worked. There was just way too much going on for our little lone, 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 loner guy to, to, to have not been connected. Um, but Lee, I think people have to remember, too, that Lee was a large, strong, uh, patriotic guy who got involved i think working with the you know the this these um clandestine activities possibly got a new name i again don't know don't know um it's it remains a pretty mind-boggling situation to consider that that there's these two guys and how they created a backstory yeah and i mean if, if you actually take the time to look at some of the photographs you know, you can tell the difference. Now, you know, people say, well, no, you know, it's just, it, it, it's malnutrition, it's stress, it's this, it's that. But, I mean, uh, no, yeah. well, no, no male. Kid yeah. Five foot four and 115 pounds doesn't become a 14 year old kid who's four foot eight and 95 pounds. Exactly. It doesn't work that way. It just, yeah, it, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, and a big strapping buck, you know, at, at 18 or 19 years old doesn't turn into a shrunken, hair-receding, mm -hmm. mal malnutritioned, you know, 23-year-old either in, in a couple years just from, you know, not eating or stress or stuff like that. I mean, because I, I think he was, what, 135 pounds when he died? That's what they said? Something like that, 135, 140, yeah. I mean, that's, dude, that's sickly, like... <laughs> well, the one thing that convinced me, and, 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 I, and I like to share it anytime I have the opportunity, and this is something that John, again, Armstrong, went and spoke with the vice principal in Texas, literally less than eight hours after he is um, accused 
of killing JFK about midnight or so on the 22nd, about 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning on Saturday the 23rd. We have FBI FBI agents going to Dallas, to Fort Worth, to get this vice president, vice principal out of bed to get Lee Harvey Oswald's ninth grade and 10th, ninth and 10th grade, ninth grade records <laughs> and confiscates them. Yeah. Now, I, it, it boggles my mind to think that of all the important things that need to have to happen on the morning after the assassination, that the FBI is literally removing the grade school, high school, junior high school records of the assassin from their original locations, and they disappear. Right. I mean, I think it comes down, I guess it was in a, um, an executive session that the, the, the lawyers just could not get past the fact that the FBI had concluded that Oswald was, the, was guilty and that there was no conspiracy. That these gentlemen sat together and said, the FBI never says that. The FBI barely even admits that it has a case strong enough to win. They don't give opinions, and yet in this particular case, they are 100% sure of these facts, yet the, the investigation continues. Exactly. Very, very, it's, it's, the evidence is the conspiracy, my friend. <laughs> That's the motto, man. That's the motto. It yep. is. It's just there. I mean, you, you just take, rip anything apart. So, goodness gracious. Well, what, what I wanted to ask you about real quick is, uh, sure. I guess it was last year, I finally got around to reading Oswald Talked by Ray and Mary LaFontaine. Mm-hmm. And I came across correspondence between them and Marina, where Marina actually gave them permission to obtain Lee Oswald's tax records, his W-2s, you know, that, that we can't get. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you had heard, because this was after their book came out, but I, I haven't heard anything out of Ray and Mary LaFontaine in the last 15 or 20 years since they wrote their book. And I just wondered if they ever, if you knew, if they ever did obtain them or they're just sitting on them or they never followed through with it. Because that'd be something that'd be nice to have. Yeah, no, I, I haven't actually gone in and, and, and dug some, done some digging into that. I, I probably need to. Um, I think the reality of any information we get from our quote-unquote government years later is not going to be anything that's going to have any indication toward Oswald one way or the other. Right. Um, we have to remember, you know, that for two years he's in Russia, so there are no tax returns. Right. For, right, for 60, or 60 and 61. And the absurdity that he would maintain and keep these records from the, you know, mid-50s and not keep uh, other records makes very little sense. What convinced me was the Social Security application from Marina. And when they went back literally from 1963 back to 1956, all the income they could find, I mean, they didn't even include his, his army income. Right. They, they went back a couple of years, they found a little bit of his income, and that's how they determined his uh, her benefit. But most of the jobs that he worked were not included. They were not listed. They were not there. And it, it does seem kind of strange that 
the FBI and this whole investigation is going backflips to try to make sure what would seem to be very innocuous information is just not available. Right. And Marina is the only one that can get it or give approval to get it. Exactly. Exactly. So 57 and 58, I mean, from what I've seen in this case and IRS tax forms, none of them seem to have been uh, very reliable to telling us anything. Right. Well, the one that jumps out at me is, is the one from Two Jacks when he was supposedly already in the Marine Corps, right? Exactly. There's Two Jacks, there's Five Fisters, who's who? Who's, yeah, the dental lab. Yeah. Dental lab, which I should add, not only was the FBI at Stripling Junior High School in Fort Worth, but during that next week, it was very important to the FBI that they interview uh, everyone at Fisters so that they knew who was working for them in 1956 and 57. And that's just crazy to me. I mean, it is. Did, did they dig into Sirhan Sirhan's junior high school years? I mean, yeah. did, did James Earl Ray's high school year? I mean, it, it just boggles the mind that it was so important that they go after these specific years and what they did with the information. Exactly. And I, I'll tell you an interesting nugget I ran across the other day reading. Um, Martin Schrand, the, the Marine that was killed when they were over in Japan on guard duty. Guard duty, right. Oswald rode with him from Florida to Biloxi when they were in training. Rode with him in the car. And he was, they were, they were, I guess, friends, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. But that just seemed seemed odd to me, because well, I was talking to yeah. to uh, Adam Go rightly about that little incident and and how you know LSD could have possibly had a, a little bit of a influence while they were over there to maybe explain some of Oswald's weird actions while he was over there. Or or maybe people who knew about both Oswalds had to uh, disappear. Yeah, because I, I was reading. Uh, what is it? The Oswald Reflection by Larry Names. Have you ever read that? Not yet, no. Well, it's 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 a fiction or a faction book. Okay, it's 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 a fiction book based in real events, which mm-hmm. you know I I, I kind of like reading those. You know when they, they yeah. have the, the the assassination of the narrative. You know what I mean? But I actually talked to Larry a little bit about it, <clears throat> and he explained to me that it was. It was kind of based on real events that that he what he thinks is that somehow the switch occurred and it had something to do with Martin Schran dying over there. Is what it, is what he was telling me. I I don't I don't doubt it. Uh, one of the things you know you look for concrete evidence that can really not be overlooked and doesn't make any sense to prove that there were two different people in the Marines at the time. Right. Um, and I'm going to lead, lead your listeners. CE, the, uh, the Commission Exhibit 1961 and 1962 are something that, that people should take a look at. In 1961's exhibit, it talks about him being at Marine Basic Training. Mm-hmm. Marine Basic Training is about 13 weeks with another three weeks for special training in most cases. Right. The 1961 exhibit 
allows five weeks he has to say for basic he, training. He completed a little ahead of schedule, team. didn't he? What's that? I said he completed it a little ahead of, ahead of schedule. A little ahead of schedule. Yeah. What's funny, though, is in their Infinite Wisdom, you go to the next exhibit, 1962, and that's Alan Feld. And Alan Feld, who spent time in basic training with Harvey Oswald, tells you that it wasn't until May, 13 weeks later, that they finally left and went to Jacksonville and on through to the rest of the locations that you see people going to. Right. So it's, it, it's all there. I mean, the evidence for the conspiracy is right there in the exhibits. It just requires a little different perspective, I think. Exactly. And a little open mind. Yeah. But yeah, check, check that book out when you get time, man. It's called The Oswald Reflection. Will indeed. Will indeed. And he's, he's writing another one uh, about Ruby, too. It's supposed to come out last year, but I don't think it's out yet. I need, I need to get okay. him on the show and talk to him. Um. One last thing, Dave, before we go. I just want to get your opinion on something real quick. Do you believe that it was an Oswald who took a shot at General Walker? Oh, no, not by any means, no. No? No, I think Walker had more than enough of his own enemies. And um, the investigation related to it, the... The boys who were looking over the fence from the church next door and the people right. who saw a couple of boys run into a car and drive away. And uh, I have to step back and say, you have to have a rifle first. Yeah, yeah. And Oswald didn't have a rifle, <laughs> okay? Oswald didn't order the rifle. Oswald never had the rifle in his possession. We, we go back to, to um, Louisiana, when he left prior to, I mean, and, and kind of things, how things all kind of dovetail into each other. I spent all this time with, with Mexico. Well, he supposedly had bought the rifle and had it in his possession in March. Right. He took it then. He must have taken it with him then to New Orleans. When they left New Orleans, he supposedly went straight to Mexico on a bus while Marina and Ruth went to Irving. Right. He didn't carry a rifle with him to Mexico and back on a bus. Nope. And the rifle wasn't in the car that was unpacked with Marina and the children and Ruth. Right. Yeah. Unless yet they just didn't notice it. <laughs> yet it shows up in the, the infamous pain evidence producing garage. Yes. When it needs to be, or at least remnants of it. It was never in the garage. Nobody ever saw it in the garage. Nobody ever saw it in the car. Nobody nobody ever saw it. So to talk about Oswald shooting Walker or even Oswald shooting Kennedy, it makes no sense. It, there, there's, you're, it's a non sequitur. You can't start that conversation until you at least put a rifle of some sort into his hands. Exactly. And since that can't be done... Yeah, it can't be done with, somebody else. with the available evidence anyway. In, indeed, indeed. Because I think all that was left was supposedly a ghostly silhouette of an imprint on a blanket, right? Uh, kind of, kind of, yeah. So they, they say. Up the blanket, up the spring, string, you know, it just, it just doesn't fly. Then you have the whole paper bag problem. It, 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 it compounds itself. The closer you look to the to this evidence, the more you can you can see the outlines of that conspiracy. It does. 
All right, David. Well, I think that's going to do it for, for, for today. We're almost out of time here. I appreciate you coming on and talking about it, man. It was an awesome conversation. Thank you, sir. And I hope you come back in the future and we can get into all kinds of different stuff if you like. Well, by the time uh, when, when the, the final of this Mexico article is done, um, and, and I talk about Mexico only because so much, so many researchers spend time while he's there, right. which is understandable because so many strange things happen there. But um, the, the, the conspiracy evidence is in these little details that really shouldn't have been so hard to come by and so hard to cover up. And I think uh, when I get all done, I'd love to come back and, and talk just Mexico for about an hour. Oh, that'd be awesome. And everybody can go head over to ctka.net and read your three-piece article over there, correct? I think that, yeah. I'm, I'm actually, there's four, four. four full articles there now. Uh, fifth piece is going to be up soon. And then the wrap-up, the sixth final article, I know it, it, it's a couple hundred pages now already of this stuff. Um, with a lot of the images and the documents embedded right within, so it kind of, kind of makes it a little easier to follow. Awesome, awesome. I'd definitely love to have you back to talk about that because that's that's one part of of all this that's it's so murky, it's so muddy, and uh-huh. it's just hard to actually figure out what the hell happened. So that would definitely be cool, man. Sounds great, bro. All right, David, I appreciate it. You hang on the line for me, okay? Everybody, head over to 22november.wordpress.com for all your assassination conversation and observations. You can hear more of my podcast, read some of the blogs over there, listen to some of Doug's old shows. Doug is currently on a self-imposed hiatus right now, but he will be back. I promise you that. In the meantime, people, the some bitches in the can up to the satellite beam down directly to your ears. This is Rob Clark thanking David Joseph for joining me. We are out. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.